0: what's up everyone and welcome into the buffalo sports collective it is monday april 24th 2023 as always i am pk alongside my co-host phil phil i don't even want to do any kind of introductions or anything like that i kind of just want to jump into it holy cow saturday night in Banditland, biggest fan attendance all year long you felt it completely that was one of the best games i've been in attendance for I would put it up there with game one of the finals last year. I wouldn't pass it, but that was probably one of the best games
1: I've been a part of in a very, very long time, at least. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming off of the 18-7 to thrashing that they recently took from the same team, this was a much different game. But in general, like you said, the atmosphere the entire time, the bandits hanging around, staying in it, the way they ended up coming back, just the... The entire game. I mean, it was just absolutely insane. It felt insane. It felt very intense. It was a, like you said, one of the best games. I think we've really seen I, probably the, uh, I don't know, the, the best seems, seems steep to say, but one of the best in-season games I think we've possibly ever seen between two teams. I mean, both tops in the East. We know that they're arguably the best in the East, and they went at it, and they looked like every single part of a... Potential playoff series that would be just absolutely insane and as massive as it was last year.
0: So remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Buffalo Sports Collective and on Twitter at Buffalo Sports Code. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel where you listen to podcast. Check out our website at Buffalo Sports Collective.com and uh, check for the time breakdowns in the description of the show. We'll jump into it like we were just talking about. We gave it a little bit of a tease, and it wasn't much of a tease because we're jumping right into it now. Saturday night, fan appreciation night in Banditland, final home game of the regular season. Winner takes the East, and the Buffalo Bandits do just that. Win it again, third straight year, I believe it is, of a actual season completing. They won 11-10. to They uh, outscore the Rock 9-6 in the second half after being down 4-2. to Byrne and Frazier had the Hatties. Smith had two. Uh, Buchanan, Nanakook, and McKay had one well one each Vince made 44 save shots were 60 to 54 in favor of the bandits face us 15 to 10 in favor of the rock rock were one for four in the power play Buffalo not much better one for five Phil where do you want to start with this one
1: I don't know if there's any bad or good place to start I guess we will start with everybody's favorite because it's been the talking point of months I believe maybe the entire year so we will kick it off with the offense going up against the league's arguably best defense, best goaltender, just absolutely shut down team, averaging less than 10 a game. You were able to put up 11, and not only were you able to put up 11, you had quite a lot of swag doing it, but I think the biggest thing with this game for the offense is exactly what we see on the score sheet, is they were able to find depth scoring and really kind of spread it out a little bit more outside of Byrne and Smith. Fraser getting the hat trick is absolutely massive, not only For the team and his own confidence, but just having that other guy who can step up and score a lot of goals, that's something the team has been missing for a little while, obviously with all the injuries. They just haven't had the depth on offense that we are used to with this team. So seeing Fraser get a hat-trick is extremely encouraging. Buchanan doing what he does best. Nanticoke looked absolutely incredible in this game. I know he was only able to score one, but it was a massive goal. But in general, he had a lot of really good opportunities. He looked every bit of the part that we know that he plays. So I think he played really well. And even McKay getting on the score sheet again, showing that he can still score when he's, you know, up on offense and made an incredible move to get past Rose. So the offense as a whole looks like it was firing on all cylinders. They looked very fresh. They threw 60 shots on net, which is something I don't think we've seen a lot of this year. So it was great to see them just firing from every angle and just, they, they looked, they looked good. I mean, I think the score could have been, Even higher, Nick Rose made a few massive saves, but they also had him burned pretty badly and just missed a few wide-open chances by hitting the post. So I think it could have been even a little bit better for the Bandits, but the offense looked much better than we've seen the last few months. Phil, I normally tap myself on the
0: back, but this time I'm going to come over there and just pat you on the back because you said it right before the game when we were talking in the lobby eating my $3 popcorn. Uh, Ian McKay. You mentioned him. Do you think you're going to see any extra shifts up at the forward group? And I went, I think you're going to mostly just see him on defense, especially with this offense with the Toronto Rock. I think you'll see him in the transition game. He was on the power play. That one goal was on the power. Or no, it wasn't. It was right after the power play. It was one, the one where uh, Josh Byrne baited and waited and waited until I think it was Zach Manns coming out of the, the box. And then he made a great deke. But I'll pat you on the back. He got more time up in the forward group than I thought he was. But I think the, the first half for this offense, it felt like the last six, seven weeks all over again, where they put up, it was four to two at halftime. And you're going, okay, the defense is hanging in there. The Matt Vince is playing unbelievable in net, but your offense is just not getting anything going. And you could tell more that it looked better than it has in the past, but they just weren't, they were getting so unlucky. And when you're not getting goals to fall, that's usually what happens. It's just the things that usually would go in, and the breaks you would get, you're just not getting. It. I mean, the one save Rose made is an insane. I I mean, he, I know he doesn't move much and he doesn't hardly really have to because he's just such a tank in the net. But that one like chicken wing arm save he made should have been a goal. There were multiple posts. There was one that was like on the line and I still don't know how that one didn't go, to, go, go in. But the benefit of the bandits, they are such battle tested team right now based on what they've been overcoming all year long. I mean, winning the East, having a chance to win the number one seed in the entire playoffs. And this offense just wasn't phased by only scoring two goals. They came out and they put in put up nine on them. It's it just seemed like something switched in the second half where everything was going in at that point, where they were the breaks were going with them. They went on a four goal run. And I mean, after going down five two to start the third, they went on a four goal run. The Rock, their biggest run they had was two goals, and Burn got it going on the power play after you know doing the typical Josh Byrne where it was baiting I think it was Jubenville on uh, on the penalty there, but it's it seemed like this off. And I'll, I'll date back to the Friday show. I said they needed to put up like 13 goals to feel, make me feel better. They only put up 11, but after seeing the second half and what the offense in general looked like. I am, I will admit, I'm feeling better moving into the playoffs. I know we're coming off a high of that game and the excitement's still there and the number one seed's theirs and everything, but the offense looked like it was back. And I mean, I guess we could talk about Coke a little bit more. I think he played a massive role in it, even walking away with just one
1: goal, one assist. Yeah. I mean, again, like just being that guy that's missing on the right side is the guy who is taking a lot of defenders with him, taking three, four, five, sometimes At times, just taking a beating, somehow holding on to the ball still. I I don't know how he does what he does, but just being able to disrupt their defense on a consistent basis, even if it's not a play that ends up getting a goal. I mean, you can just tell that the defense then has to be concerned about what Nanako can bring on that right side. And then when you have him and Dane out there at the same time, he's setting picks, allowing Dane to do a little bit more of what he does. And sometimes, It's not always about the pick and roll or that kind of idea. I mean, Nanako can also free up space so Dane can find that perfect assist that he's very used to doing as well. So it just gives him a little bit more breathing room, a little bit more space to do what he does. So Nanako, being back in the offensive lineup looked really good and it definitely helped the team have quite a big boost there. But a player that is, I don't want to say concerning because it sounds too harsh, but a player that seems to have disappeared the last two weeks that is mildly concerned to me is Chris Cloutier. I think... I said the same
0: thing. He, uh, when he, he had that yeah. diving one across the crease and it didn't go in, I turned to Brooke I went, he's got to get one to fall. I know he had five assists last week and I Again, think two right. in this
1: game, but I, I, where did the goals go? They dried up. Right. Like He's still, he's still out there. He's still making a difference. He's still contributing to the team that's why I think concern is a little I don't know I don't know how else to put it but like concern's not it he's still making an impact still a big presence on that offense not saying you got to bench him or anything like that but his goals have just kind of disappeared from a guy who is used to scoring and heading into playoffs that's not great for someone on the left side because I think that left side needs some more help other than Josh Byrne I mean, had. A great play that I think was stopped by Rose on a very quick one-timer, but other than that, I mean, McCauley's more of your, like Nana Coke on the other side, but a little bit more of your just kind of pick-and-roll kind of guy. Your guy who's going to free up the defense, he isn't really playing that role of offensive player right now, whereas Colucci is always known to score insane goals and whether it's diving through the crease or just snipes from outside but like you said the last two games he's dried up a little bit which is again not concerning but hopefully in that Albany game he can start to get it going kind of roll into playoffs a little bit on a hot streak
0: yeah I mean he's kind of been a bit more quiet since his overtime winner, and like you said he's doing a bunch of other things on the offensive end that don't appear up on the scoreboard but I mean that one dive across the crease he got out of it out of the uh the goalie box in time and was able to do the uh, allow Chase Frazier just to have that insane between the leg goal number three on SportsCenter, which I don't know how it was not the number top play. But I'll go back to Nanakoke. I we made such an important point about mentioning Bre- Brandon Robinson and his absence on the field. We did mention Nanakoke, but I don't think we really. Gave that the attention that it deserved about how much his presence in the offense was missing, not just because he's a big time goal scorer, but, it's the other things that don't appear on the box score. It's the, it's the hard picks that you're setting. Like you said it perfectly. When he sets the pick, it's not always just to free up a Dane Smith shot. It could free up a Dane Smith pass that leads to a goal. He, he, like you said, you can't get the ball out of his stick. How many times have you thought, Oh my God, how does that ball not get out of the stick? He didn't drop the ball once, Phil. He had, let me look at this. Yeah. Uh, three turnovers. I'm shocked it's that high. I don't trust that in all the stats, but I'm shocked it was three turnovers. He also baits and draws so many penalties. I mean, from guys, I don't, the guy has to have like a, a harder helmet, than anybody else because he got drilled in the head the one time, laid there like he wasn't moving, popped up and was smiling the whole time. Like, I don't get how this guy is able to withstand the same amount or the amount of damage and the hits and the checks and the all that kind of stuff. He endures and gets back up and is just smiling all the time. And I also want to give credit to Brad McCulley on the other side. He set up multiple goals. I mean, I think it was the... The 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 power play goal for um the one that was just a dribbler line drive across the ground, which I don't know how that one beat Nick Rose, but it did. The Josh Byrne power play goal that got this run going. He set that pick to set it up. Both those guys are doing the dirty work that led to those 11 goals that were scored. So whether you see them on the stat sheet or not, unless you're watching the game, their presence and their work on the offensive end will not
1: go appreciated. One of the things I think Nanakoke does, because my brother and I were trying to talk about it, I think he one of the penalties he drew in the game where he got hit in the face, like you just mentioned, he does all the time. And we were wondering, like, why of all the players does he get hit in the face seemingly more than anybody? And I think on that play, especially when they showed the replay, you could tell that one thing that he does that is a good way to play and also helps draw some of these penalties is he lowers his head a lot when he is driving forward to he, like he often takes guys on -on one-on-one. He's not scared of pretty much anybody just charges at people full speed. And a lot of times when he does it, he kind of lowers his shoulder, lowers his head. So obviously his head is in a little bit more vulnerable spot, but it's also in a spot where he might get hit in the head and draw some more of those penalties. I think that's exactly how he drew that penalty where the guy hit him in the face is because he just lowered his head to go at the guy. And then the guy went and got a stick up a little too high. And that's how you draw that kind of penalty. So I think that's one of the reasons why he so oftentimes gets a lot of those kind of hits to the head and also draws those pennies like if you compare it to dane smith and you watch the way that he takes the guy one-on-one he's very up upright he's very tall he's very you know using his body more as a playing off the guy instead of kind of like a bowl rush whereas nanico just charges full speed at you head down i think that's how he draws a lot of those and it's great to see and i'm glad that the bandits have a guy willing to do it because i couldn't and uh like you said my goodness the beating that poor man takes on a daily basis it Makes sense why he was out for so long with a little bit of a rough concussion, but for him to come back even after a concussion and have no fear of getting hit in the head multiple times, uh, more power to him. Yeah, and that's exactly
0: what we've been missing is a guy that can get to the middle of the of the field and put those goals in. But let's talk about the third quarter because my God, was it insane. Eight, eight goals in nine minutes, including five by the Bandits in around four minutes, and I think they were all insane. I mean, the Chase Frazier one that's all over the place right now where I don't think – I think you're the one that said it. I don't think he had to put it between the legs, but, man, was it a statement that broke the soul of the Toronto Rock. Uh, The the behind the back by Kyle Buchanan just proves that the old man still got the skills. It's just that run of four straight goals, it felt like, okay, we got control, we got the one-goal lead, but then the Toronto Rock scored two more goals right back. It almost felt like, what more can this team do? You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're putting the goals up. They're up. They got that 6-5 to five lead, but then the Rocks score two more. And then Kyle Buchanan ties it up, and then Corey Small ties uh, takes the lead again. It just felt like every time the Buffalo Bandits had any kind of momentum, the Toronto Rock would get it right back. But, I mean, I guess we can flip that over to the defense now. It's They were able to stifle this threat of an offense that I've been claiming – the rock have all year long and I mean being one of the, the the second best offensive power power in the league they they held the Toronto Rock that scored 18 on you just a couple of weeks ago to 10 goals that's unbelievable it it could have and probably should have only been nine Phil with that challenge rule that we'll go over in a bit that it seemed like a, a quick 30 seconds to me but it's 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 th- I guess like I said we switched it over to the defense rock solid effort Plenty of guys stood on their head and played unbelievably. Yes, there were a few slip-ups. There were a few gas in their defensive scheme, which are going to happen against a talented Rock team and in lacrosse in general. But they stood on their head and they played unbelievable versus the second-best offense in the league. And they've done it time and time
1: again, excluding the one Rock game all year long. Yeah, I think, I mean, as far as a negative for them, I think the only real negative was that the— Timeout right before half. That was a soul-crushing dagger for them to score with three seconds left yeah, on a that one. perfectly set up timeout call play that they ran just, again, perfectly. I mean, the, everything they did shifted around perfectly, and that seemed to be the exactly how they drew it up. I mean, they, they just wanted to get that guy free in the middle for a good shot, and that's exactly what they did. And they scored three seconds left. You go into half, not down 3-2, but down 4-2. And that's, once again, a testament to this team for the Bandits, though, and everything you just mentioned was that's what they've been doing all year long is battling back the entire season because of the injuries, because of the way that this season has gone. A lot of these close games, it gets them ready for a game like this where you're down 4-2 after just allowing another goal. And then even, like you said, in the third, Toronto just got battling back and battling back and battling back and not letting the Bandits actually catch up or pull away. But then in the fourth, it really took off. But for the defense... Overall, I thought they played great. I mean, you have, I haven't gone over it yet, but they had the one really early rough transition goal they gave up. But other than that, I think the transition was pretty good, which is Toronto, one of the big things that Toronto does is has an incredible transition game. But I think for the most part, the Bandits were able to calm that down. Even the power play, like you mentioned, or the penalty kill in this aspect. I mean, the Bandits have a pretty solid penalty kill, but Toronto has a lot of offensive firepower. And the way they were whipping that ball around on the, penalty kill and the amount of rebounds they were able to get without the bandits really being able to clear it to see them only score one goal on the power play for Toronto I think that was also a just massive job by the defense and then Matt Vince I mean my goodness the the man is just amazing I know there's probably a few in this game that he would have wanted back and that is nothing to say bad about his performance but you could just tell there were a few that he let in that he was not happy about with himself but for the most part Just an absolutely incredible, incredible game by him. And the end of the game, there was another, I believe it was the Bandits' 10th goal. The Toronto Rock came back very quickly after they were talking about (laughs) Moe's on the announcement. And they had an insane transition attempt that Matt Vince stopped and then a massive rebound that he stopped again right after. And I think the crowd kind of took over and cheered for him. And then just the end of game onslaught that toronto loves to do against the bandits like it goes back to the playoffs and the eastern finals that once again that comes down to that one goal game and that last possession where you just don't know what's going to happen but matt vince played absolutely incredible especially those last couple of saves
0: yeah if they if the matt vince slander which shouldn't be out there to begin with. You could be critical. Like we've we've been critical of Matt Vince on this show. We're not afraid to do it. There are times where you have to be critical of a uh, a player. But it's it's the insane <laughs> criticism that he would take to some from some fans and I I I, I, I say this so many times. I know it's a minority, but there really shouldn't be any criticism like that by Matt fans go he's over the hill he he can't perform anymore they should be looking for another uh, the future guy the guy just won the goaltender of the year last year he's going to be in contention for it in one of the final three this year I mean if anybody is still saying that pull out the last 30 seconds of this game just play it on repeat until they go okay I get it don't have to do it anymore he saved this team he's the reason or you can see how much appreciative his teammates are. He won the MVP, voted on by the players. He's just an unbelievable performer that comes up clutch when he needs to. He allowed six second-half goals. How many times this year, Phil, have we gone in here and just went, they stood on their head in the second half. Matt Vance bounced back and just played unbelievable and kept this team in in the second half. Or in the first half, he kept them off the board. The Rock had four goals in the first half and your, your Buffalo Bandits had two. You don't think for a second that the, the team won this game on the back of Matt Vince, who kept the rock within grasp. I mean, two goals from your offense in the first half is horrible. It's terrible. I, we already went over the whole situation about getting unlucky, and when goals aren't falling, they're not falling, all that kind of stuff. But your defense and your goaltender has to keep you in the game when the goals aren't flowing, and that's exactly what he did. I mean, He did the old-style 90s stacking the pads at the very end there. Even before that, he did the toe save. It's just the saves he was doing, he didn't look like a 40-plus-year-old man to me, Phil. He looked like a guy who still has 10 more years left in this league. And, Matt Vince, if you're listening, please play 10 more years because you can, and we need you in net because I don't know what this team would look like without Matt Vince between the pipes.
1: I mean, again, it goes to what they've done all season long. How many games have we discussed that they've won by one goal or an overtime seven,
0: six versus San Diego. uh, Right.
1: You don't win. I would say a lot, a lot of these games without Matt Vince playing the way he does, whether it's high scoring or low scoring. But I mean, how many times have we talked about the offense being bad and the, you know, games being extremely close winning in overtime. You don't, get those wins without an incredible goaltender keeping you in those games the entire time. And while this offense has been rough all year, again, we've talked about it to death at this point about them not being quite you know what we expected with all the injuries, but with them playing not nearly as good as we are used to seeing them, the only reason that you continue to get win after win after win is because you have a guy like Matt Vince between the pipes and there's Simply just no one else out there right now that I would want instead of Matt Vince. And he showed it once again in this game, and this team showed it in this game. I mean, you and I, going into this game, I know we both picked them to lose, but in general, I think we had a bit of a a rough feeling heading into this game. I think it's one of the first games all season long that I've really felt the Bandits were the true underdog heading into this game. I don't know if that's the way they felt necessarily, but... I think going into this game with the way Toronto's been playing, with the goal differential they're putting up, they were clearly the team, especially after that 18-7 game, they were the team in the East before this game, and I mean, that was incredible for the Bandits to come out and put up that statement win, and really just kind of put that all aside, and like you said, 4-2 at halftime for them to come out in the second half, you mentioned how bad it was between these two in the second half, as I know the 18-7 kind of screws things a little bit, but... How bad the second half between these two teams was in the first game that Toronto really took over in the second half, where normally the bandits are second half team, and in this game, finally, especially in the fourth quarter, the bandits were able to kind of take that back and take it and run away and get the win. And it's just such a massive win, not only for the East, but for the bandits confidence going into playoffs. You just needed this game at the very least to be close no matter what happens. But to be able to prove to themselves that they can beat a team like Toronto right now, I think is just it's huge. It's it was a extremely fun game, extremely loud game, very, very physical. And that is, I guess if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that next. Yeah, I mean this is the eighth time these two teams have
0: met. In the last two years. And if I were a betting man. I'm thinking they're going to meet at least two or three more times. In a couple weeks. But yeah. The the only other thing I wanted to just mention. Because I, I feel like I have to throw a little bit of a negative in here. Is if you do meet in round two. Of the, the finals of the Eastern Conference. They have to figure out how to stop Corey Small. And the reason behind that. In the three games. If I remember correctly. He has 22 points points against you you th- that's he is the Buffalo Bandits kryptonite right now when it comes to the Toronto Rock. yes yeah, Sh- Schreiber had th- three one and four Keo one two and one even Rogers had a great game three three and six and you blame me for that one I'll take credit for that one because I-, I still love Jalen Rogers come to Buffalo maybe towards the tail end of your career just so I can meet you whatever but it's I still think that the defense has to figure out a way to shut down Corey small, whether that's them focusing more of their attention on Schreiber and Dan Craig. I mean, they shut down Dan Craig. He had two assists in this one, but it's just, it seems like Corey small is the biggest issue for this, this, this defense to figure out. And if that's the biggest issue they're having right now, and you know, Corey small being the, the thorn in their side, you're, you got plenty of time, but yeah, it's, the physicality and the the bad blood between these teams it didn't even end in the game the toronto rock wouldn't go to their their uh, locker room at the end of the game it's just if there is anything that anybody wants to wish for for their birthday it is to see these two teams meet again in the second round of the Easter Conference finals with the winner moving on to the championship Phil. that will be must see TV that will be something that you shouldn't take young children to because <laughs> these y- you always say that there's respect for one another you know they they respect each I I truly believe that both of these teams respect each other and that the competitiveness to it but you can still hate each other and still respect each other, and I think the 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 hatred and the bad blood went from where I didn't think it could get any higher to a whole nother level based on that entire game, and it wasn't even as dirty and as chippy as I thought it was going to end up being. With I think being as close as it was helped with that, but man, if there is anything that I am rooting for right now, just on a person that covers the team in the league. It's to see these two teams meet in a three-game matchup to see who makes it to the finals, and my God, it's got to go through bandit land.
1: Yeah, speaking of the physicality, I mean, you you mentioned plenty of excitement there, so I'm gonna just let you end that one. But the refs this game, we've Ooh. been overall not too too uh, was it critical? There it is of the refs, but this game I thought started okay and I was okay with what they were doing and then they lost all sorts of control and just the for the most part like in this game when it first started it was just an insane amount of physicality exactly what you just mentioned and the refs were letting pretty much everything go it was just I mean helmets were flying off of the Toronto Rock left and right no calls were being made I was like all right this is the kind of game they're gonna have it's a playoff atmosphere you're just gonna let everything go let the guys play unless it's really bad that's fine and then they started calling things that were a little bit simpler calls and then they let some really really rough plays go and they just got very inconsistent toward the end and honestly i i'm all about letting players play and letting it you know be physical but i think they lost control of this one as far as some of the calls that should have been made that weren't i mean i forgot who it was and it happened on both ends i mean again to start the game the bandits were just ripping toronto rock players helmets off left and right. I mean, every single time you saw a guy down on the ground getting crushed. And I mean, thank goodness that the bandits came out that way, because I would much rather you start that way and see how the refs are calling it. If they're not going to call it, keep it up because Toronto ended up giving it right back. But I'm not sure who it was who was diving in the crease, but somebody do, I don't know, you might remember, I don't know if it was Nanicoke maybe going into the crease where they had him literally in a headlock, dragged him to the ground, and ripped his helmet off. Yeah, it was Nanako. And there was no call. There was another one against Josh Byrne where he got just a stick directly to the head. No call whatsoever. I mean, it was just plays like that where I'm all for letting things get physical, letting things go, but there's also player safety that eventually has to be a concern. And overall, I think it was just the inconsistency from the refs in this game. I don't think... Either team had an advantage or disadvantage, so that's even in a way. I I don't think the calls were really going one way or the other. I think the Bandits got away with some things. I think Toronto got away with some things, but for the most part, it was just inconsistency on the refs of what they were calling and what they were allowing that really bothered me.
0: Yeah, what you said there at the end is exactly what we try not to bash the refs, and I think we do a pretty good job of it. The biggest thing that we've always said on this show, and you can check the record, you can listen to the old episodes on it, it's you have to remain consistent. If you're not going to call something, don't call it throughout the entire game. If you're going to call something, call it throughout the entire game. And it just felt like I, I wasn't mad about any of the calls that were made. I wasn't mad about any of the calls that weren't made. What I was mad about is there were things that you would call, and then something else would happen, which is the exact same, and you would let that go. And I understand the refs have a difficult job. I I would never want to be in that position. They get hated on no matter where they go. It it doesn't matter. But you just got to remain consistent. And I agree with the player safety, the hitting in the head. That's got to put. has got to come first and foremost. Your your main job out there is not just police the game, but to keep the players safe. So if if you want to talk about that part, I I can I can see that part. But it's just. It it was such an inconsistently reffed game where, like you said in the beginning, okay, it's going to be this type of game. It, it's going to be, you know, out for blood and they're going to let most things go and swallow their whistle. But then you get, how do you get a checking from behind cross-checking with, on Nick Weiss with one hand? How does that happen? I, I, if you want to call it slashing, it was probably a slash because he slashed him in the back of the head in the back of the, uh, in the back. But Not only were they inconsistent with the calls they were making, they were getting the calls wrong. It wasn't a checking from behind. It wasn't a cross checking. It was a slashing. If you're going to call anything, it's just, it, this was the, I think this is the only game of the year and I'll have to go back and listen. If I'm wrong on this, I'll, I'll check myself, but I think this is the only game where I actually had issue with how they were refing, not the calls that they were making, Just the way they were policing it. And I think you set it up perfectly. I think they lost control of it because of the way they were being so inconsistent. The players didn't know what they could get away with. Early on, the players feel it out. Every sport, you can feel out, okay, are they going to be short on the whistle this time? Or are they going to let most things go? It seemed like they were going to let most things go. And then they were like, oh no, we have to police this better. We got to pull it back. It's just... It's the same thing we've been saying for two years. Just be consistent. If you're going to be consistently bad, be consistently bad. If you're going to be consistently good, be consistently good. No matter what you do, just got to be consistent. So, Phil, there's not much else we can talk about this game. We kind of talked it to death here, but Bandits, number one in the East, third straight year that of the year that completed. I hate that I have to say that, but... We'll go over the BSC update here. This encompasses the five Bisons games and the one Bandits game here. I am up 2397.55 to 2088.52. You put up 30.5. I put
1: up 35.5. Not bad. Not bad. I mean, Nanticoke return helped a smidgen, but overall, not bad for, for both of us. That's a lot of points. I feel like we normally don't see that much. It helps when I get seven of the 11 goals. It does. I mean, the fact that I was only five points off, I will take it. Seven Eleven, go get your Slurpee.
0: So we'll go over the milestones here. Uh, thank God a lot happened, so I can not do as many next week. Fingers crossed, because I thought that same thing last time. Chris Cloutier did get his 100 point of his career. Congrats to him. Dane Smith got his 600th assist of his career. Congrats to him. Steve Priolo with his uh, quote unquote roughing with uh, Mitch New, He crossed the 500 career penalty minute mark. He's just the ninth player ever to do that in NLL history. Matt Vince. When he did play, he did tie Josh Sanderson for sixth all-time in NLL history with 268 games played. Ian McKay got his 400th career loose ball in this game. Matt Vince did become the most or the winningest Buffalo Bandits goalie of all time with his 48th win. He is number 48. How creative. Josh Byrne is also now in 15th place by himself in uh, single season Buffalo Bandits all-time goals. He is sitting at 40 right now. Well, single-season all-time goals, I think I said that. And then uh, Steve Pirillo, he is in second place with Pims. Phil, he is tied with him right now with uh, Francis. He needs one more penalty minute to have the single-season penalty minutes record all to himself. And then Dane Smith, he is uh, three assists away from breaking his own record from last year. And I think him and Teet are 13 or 12 points away from the uh, record himself. They're
1: both tied right now. Uh, it helps when New York only scores six total goals. Yeah, they are both at 126. The record is 135. Uh 137. Why do I always think it's 135? I don't I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, 137. Anyway, 137. So yeah, they are 11 points away. I don't he had think
0: 135 he, last year. That's probably why where he that, came up just
1: short probably. Do it. So I don't think either of them are going to really get that. And as far as MVP goes, I don't think the points necessarily will matter between those two. I think what Dane has meant to Buffalo has been a little bit more then Jeff T to New York. I mean, no offense to Jeff Teet. His season and the cast around him is still absolutely incredible, especially for just his sophomore year. He's going to be one legitimate player and probably just smashing records left and right. But the way Dane Smith has been able to carry this offense through all the injuries and carry this team and just do such a good job for everything that he's been able to do and keep this team in first place in the East, I think he is right up there with probably Del Bianco for a uh mvp vote and look at and because he got it last year i don't know if they're gonna want to give him back to back but we'll see we will see and his assist record i would be kind of sad if he doesn't break it at this point needing only that couple and i think you had one correction uh chris gucci got his 100th assist i think you said points he has you're right he has more than 100 points but it was his assist but still And even Priolo, uh, to catch up to Francis in a single season is not an easy thing to do because Francis just fought everybody every single game. I think if the league back at the time when Francis was around was 18 games, nobody would ever touch his penalty minutes because that was all he did was just get uh, get the crowd going, fight people, and just absolutely demolish everybody. And the building was usually... Just deafening after his fights, and it was a lot of fun. But congrats to Priolo, really uh, catching up to him.
0: So on our next show, we will go over the Buffalo Bandits and the Albany Firewolves preview, uh, get a little revenge for week one. So, Phil, we'll move on to the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, what was a high for the Buffalo Bandits is a low for the Buffalo Bisons. We have five games to go over because, you know, spring, worst season on the face of the planet. I'll just go over the scores really quick. Thursday, game one, they lost 10-2. to in seven the Thursday game two they lost three to two in seven Friday though they did win three to two Saturday lost 11 six and then Sunday they won 11 six so in the series they lost two to four not an ideal start to the season that we were hoping for for the Buffalo Bisons.
1: uh no nope and I mean we talked about the roster preseason we looked at everything they looked like they had a lot of young prospects mixed in with some great veterans pitching staff looked like it was going to be legit hitting. We were finally going to get some runs. I understand it's still early. There's no cause for panic necessarily, but this is just not going how we expect I mean, they're losing some close ones. I mean, you lost 3-2. You won 3-2. Losing 10-2 is not close. Losing 11-6 is not close, but then flipping it and winning 11-6 was exciting. I mean, overall, it's just not yeah, just not not the way we expected this to start. I mean, some players that we expect to do really well and be very consistent are struggling mightily. And I think that's just a big part of it is that the top of the rotation right now as a whole, not necessarily prospect related, but Lawrence is struggling still quite a bit. I mean, the top of the pitching rotation is not doing great. And the top of the hitting rotation or hitting roster is not doing great. And when The stars of both of those are struggling. The depth is most likely going to struggle as well. So when your your top players aren't doing well, that's kind of where the team will follow, and that's kind of what we're seeing. So it's overall just a a struggle in spring here. I think we at the BSC will just blame the weather because uh, that's what we do. And if there's any way to sneak the weather in real quick, that's how I'm going to do it. Expert
0: analysis here coming for you, Phil. Um, Thursday... They lost three to two. Friday they won three to two. Saturday they lost 11-6. Sunday they won eleven to six. I wonder if that's ever—it's ha- had to have happened in the history of baseball, right? Where you lose the game before and then you win it the exact same score back to back times.
1: Uh, I mean, I would imagine baseball's been going on for a bajillion years, and there's you know an insane amount of games per season. So I would assume, especially given uh, the stats that they have, that on you know the cloudy april day with the winds coming from northeast at uh you know 10 miles per hour and that's when this guy has four home runs and no strikeouts so with those kind of stats that baseball loves to pull up out of absolutely nowhere i would assume this has happened more than once but still fun still fun to see uh on paper yeah, I mean, it
0: seemed like the Game 1 and Game 2 of the doubleheader on Thursday, the Bats just couldn't get going. I mean, they only scored runs in the bottom of the 7th in the first game. And then again, the only runs came in the bottom of the 7th in the second game. And the, the the hitters in the Game 1 went 2 for 23 with 2 walks, 2 strikeouts, and they didn't have any hits until the final inning. It seemed like it's not... I, I'll talk about Thompson in a minute because I want to address him a bit. But it seems like none of the pitchers are struggling mightily. It's just they're giving up runs when they shouldn't, if that makes sense. It's just like Zulu. He had two innings pitched, two earned runs. Not terrible, but you know, th- th- it's icer. He had a better outing, four earned runs, but then you go to like Friday, Brad, he came in, four innings pitched, gave up two earned runs, but then the rest of the bullpen shut it down. It just seems like, The the pitchers aren't struggling to an extreme level where they're giving up six, seven, eight, nine earned runs, but they're giving up one here, two there, one here, two there. Where it's just it's putting a damper on, and you're seeing the score totals be what it is because the Saturday game where they lost eleven six, five of the six pitchers gave up at least one run in that one, including Berman who pitched the ninth inning. So it just seems like they got to tighten up, they got to be a bit more consistent, and. That seems to be the biggest issue for them, at least in the pitching department. It's just they're not getting hit hard for the most of them. And it's just that the guys who are pitching one or two innings are giving up one or two runs each each outing. And that's why you're seeing the runs being put up that are, you know, 11 and 10 and those higher scoring games for the opponents.
1: It also seems like their accuracy is not great, which obviously leads to right. Hits and everything, but I mean, the the amount of walks that they are allowing in such a short yep. amount of time, I mean, Thompson, in the one he struggled, gave up three walks in four innings, Zulu in his, when he struggled a little bit, three walks in two innings, Hatch, Fernandez, and Pearson, five innings, but still three walks, Bard, four innings, two walks, so... I mean, you can't be giving up that many free bases, but also when your command isn't quite there, and again, walks are gonna happen, two and four is not terrible, but I mean Zulu two and three, I mean four and three, that's not great. I mean, free bases just aren't what you want to give up, but at the same time, that usually indicates that their accuracy is missing, and if your accuracy is missing a little bit, then some of your pitches might not be, you know, quite as sharp as you'd like, and that's when you allow hits and that's when you allow home runs. So it seems like the pitching overall just isn't quite as sharp as it needs to be. I mean, they're like you said, I don't think they're miles and miles off. I think they just need a little bit more time, a little bit of a tweak here and there. And I think they're going to end up being OK. I think their rotation and bullpen are still fine. They have the arms. I think they just need to get on a little bit of a roll and fine tune a few things here and there. But I don't think they're far off. But I mean, these these couple of games have not been great.
0: Now, Phil, i Played baseball for three years when I was younger, but I never pitched. And I know you pitched through high school. And my main question for you is because I uh, this is an honest question. I have no idea. Does cold weather? I know it affects the players hitting, and I know it affects players' arms, and you know it's hard to play in the cold baseball. But does it affect accuracy? The colder temperatures, like does the the I'm trying to get all technical with my, this is the weather segment of the show. Does it, does it affect like the wet? I I can't think of the word for it. Like more dense in the air as it's cold would be affecting their
1: accuracy. Is that something that happens when you're pitching or do you have no idea? I think if anything, it would be just that, Trying to keep your arm warm in, this, in those situations okay. and keep your arm very loose. And if your arm is a little bit tighter than normal, it doesn't allow you to get the full range of motion, and that just kind of okay. There it goes. Then creates your pitches to be a little bit flatter and just not quite. I mean, it won't have the break that you're looking for on some of your pitches because your arm snap is not there, your arm speed is not quite there, and along with that, your accuracy. I don't know if it would necessarily be accuracy, but again, if your break on your pitches isn't what you're expecting it to be and it's right. staying you know, an inch higher than you're used to it being an inch lower because it is a little bit colder out, then yeah, that could cause an accuracy issue and that could cause hitters to have a little bit of an advantage when the ball is just coming in a little flatter with less movement because your arm isn't quite as warm as you would like it to be. I mean, that's why you always see pitchers in the dugout with that huge jacket on just their pitching arm, trying to keep it as warm as possible. It's because of kind of those situations. You want your arm snap to be there. You want your wrist really whipping that ball. And again, your arm speed is a big part of pitching. So if it is a little bit colder, it is a little bit tighter. It can cause an issue. Okay. Cause I was going to say it was
0: more of a cold week this week and the walks were up. So that could play in a factor here, but I'll talk about Zach Thompson and then we'll move on to the, players watching all that kind of stuff, but he has struggled mightily this year. And and just to start on Thursday, he went four innings pitch, six earned runs, seven hits, walked three, gave up two home runs on the year. He's 0-1 with a nine ERA and four starts. He has yet to get past the fifth inning. He has allowed 25 hits, 17 earned runs, five home runs, eight walks, eight strikeouts, and with the teams are hitting 347 against him. That's not good at all. And he was brought in in the offseason, and I think a trade, if I do remember correctly. He has not performed very well at all. And yes, it's still early on, but those numbers, those walks, those hits allowed. I don't know if the weather's getting to him, but that 347 average against him is insane because anything above, like, I don't know, 250 is not good for a pitcher. And he's hit, he's got players hitting 347 against him so i'll it'll be interesting to see how he is this coming up series in his next start but if he doesn't start going he might lose his rotation spot
1: it was chavez young from the toronto organization as a prospect minor league oh, outfielder yep. Thank for uh zach thompson coming from the pittsburgh pirates i loved young
0: He was that fun
1: characteristic guy that was always on the field. Then he got hurt, and then we never saw him again. (laughs) Literally, because now he's not on the team anymore. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Again, you can try to chalk it up to it being early, but those numbers are brutal. And, uh, yeah, just all around bad, very, very bad, very bad numbers. So, I mean, he's another one of those players that I don't know. I don't think we quite know how the developmental or you know that list works where you can kind of send them to get some things fixed but I again I don't know what the regulations and terms I don't know if any player on the team is a good candidate for yes he's a if it's legal I think it would be a good time to send a player that's struggling this poorly to that kind of situation get him out of the rotation for a little bit not months and months or anything but maybe a few starts off get him a little rest and just figure out what is going on because he's not performing very well. And like you said, I think they had higher expectations for him coming into this season as a solid rotation arm, and it's not going great.
0: So like I said, for this series, they went two and four, 24 runs scored, 28 runs against the record sitting at 8 and 12 right now player watch for the prospects that you know we're keeping an eye on more this year. Zulu, he we went 2 innings pitched, 2 earned runs, 2 hits, 3 walks, 3 strikeouts. On the year he's got 8 innings pitched, 7.88 ERA and 11 to 4 K to walk ratio. Jurgen I did it, Phil. Jurgen, four and one-third of an inning, a win, four hits, one walk, eight strikeouts on the season. Eleven and two-thirds of an inning pitched, three point oh nine ERA, nineteen to three K to walk ratio, unbelievable start to the season. He's having Pearson, two innings pitched, one walk, one uh hit, two strikeouts, and a save. He closed out that three to two victory on Friday night. The, uh, season so far, 8 and 1, or 8.1 innings pitch, 2.16 ERA, 16 to 5K to walk ratio. Juergen and, uh, Pearson, top two bullpen arms right now. And then, uh, we'll go over the hitters real quick. Horwitz, not in his series, three for 17 with a home run, one run, four RBIs, four, or five walks, four strikeouts. He's hitting 241 on the year with one home run, five RBIs, 16 to 13K to walk ratio. He's having a pretty decent season, though, compared to what these rest of the numbers are going to be. Barger, two for 18, eight strikeouts, two runs, three walks, one RBI, and an error on the season. He's got four errors, hitting 215, one home run, six RBIs. And a twenty-four to nine walk ratio—that is not good at all. Schneider one for nine, two runs, two RBIs, three walks, two walk, or two uh, strikeouts. He's hitting two hundred, one home run, four RBIs, thirteen to eight K to walk ratio, and then Lopez. man, Phil, he somehow got bumped up to the taxi squad, but he went one for 17 in this series, three Ks, two runs, one RBI. On the season, he's hitting just a 169 with five RBIs and a 13 to 4K ratio. These top prospecting hitters that we had such high hope for, besides Horowitz, they're having a slow start to the season.
1: Yeah, and Horowitz, once again, his walks are also just insanely high. He For a guy who's played 17 games, one of the few who has, he is up there for on-base percentage. He's at 397. So again, his average might not be exactly there, but he is second on the team with 13 walks. The number one person who we talked about last time, who also average isn't there, but the walks are there, is Vinny Capra. He is at 14 walks, but those two know exactly where that strike zone is. They walk a lot. Again, I feel like with someone who is seeing the ball that well, walking that often, the average just has to come. Like, to me, yeah. I feel like yep. that's what you're looking for, that they're not striking out an insane amount. I mean, they they both have strikeouts for sure. It's not like they're both low or inept to it, but when you're walking that much, it means you're seeing the ball very well, and eventually the hits will come. I mean, Horwitz is not doing a bad job in that department, hitting 241, like you mentioned. Not incredible, but still not bad, and the walks are right there. But Capra, I think, is a candidate for that average at some point going much higher because he seems to be seeing the ball overall pretty well, but yeah, the prospects and the hitters that we expected to do very well, struggling a lot. I mean, I feel like, what was it? One of the first episodes we had where they were just doing incredible, like Lopez and Barger were off to an extremely good start. And all of a sudden, both of them have really tanked in the last couple of series. And it's not great to see, but you said Lopez now in the taxi squad. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with him and who might, you know, kind of take over that spot. But Barger, another one. I mean, I guess you can give him a little bit more lead way because it's his first time truly in AAA getting that full season, hopefully. I mean, we'll see how he does, but he started off really, really well and now he has slipped quite a bit. So I don't know if they've just really run into some good pitching or are just in a really tough streak. But like you said, I think the pitching prospects are doing a really good job with Junger and Pearson looking incredible. Zulu, I don't think. You can take too, too much away from what he's done. I know his ERA is really high, but that walk-to-K ratio is not bad. And overall, they're just not giving him a lot of opportunities to pitch. So when you only pitch a couple innings and you let in a couple runs, your ERA is going to look terrible. So I think if they allow him to slowly stretch out and he starts to get a little bit more work, I think that ERA is going to come down. I don't think he's really performing terrible. I think he's doing okay so far as far as his first AAA action. But Junger and Pearson definitely the prospects that are doing the best right now. And like you said, Horowitz also not off to a bad start. BSC update. In these five
0: games, you put up 18 points. I put up 15 and a half. Are you making any changes to your team, which consists of Lopez, Horowitz, Brantley, Zulu, and Pearson? And I have Barger, Bernard, Clement, Lawrence, and Thompson. You know,
1: I feel like Brantley, Ah, man, I don't know. I don't know. I guess not for now. There's a player I'd like to pick up, but... I have to wait for Lopez to hopefully get called up so I get them points, and then after that we'll see what happens, but there's uh, there's one, one player who's hitting pretty well, but Brantley, who obviously he's not a prospect, so we don't really talk about him, but he's off to a really good start for a catcher. I mean, he's played in 14 games, and he's hitting two eighty-six with a four thirty-four on base percentage, so out of players that have played a lot of games, he is number one on the team and on base percentage. So he's he's been a little bit of a, a bright spot as far as a non-prospect overall for the team goes.
0: I'm dropping Thompson, picking up Jurgen. Who is Jurgen? That yeah, I, I pronounced his name wrong again, Phil. <laughs> uh, I know you did. <laughs> I know, you're just rubbing it him. Okay, so on our next show, we're going to be talking about the series. Gwinnett, they're 7-13, 92 runs scored, 115 runs against. Phil, I'm putting it out there again, even though it didn't work when they faced Rochester. This is a series to get back above 500 they They're four games under five hundred right now. Uh, Get it going, Buffalo Bison. So, Phil, we'll move on to our final segment here. This is something that we adjusted, and we we have plenty of – you know, company meetings about where, yes, we're still going to talk about Buffalo Sabres and Buffalo Bills, but we know how much coverage is out there. We know how much time and effort some of these other podcasts and some of these other websites and some of these other sources put into this kind of stuff where we just can't match with it. So rather than try to go into the in-depths of it all. We're just going to give our opinions because we love talking about these teams. They're going to remain a staple of the show, but we're just going to adjust the way we move. And I think the Buffalo bills are a good way to do this because the draft is Thursday. It goes till Saturday. Round one is Thursday rounds two and three are uh, Friday. And then four to seven are on Saturday. Now, we haven't done much draft coverage whatsoever this year. I think we did a lot of it last year. Like I said, there's plenty of shows out there that cover this. Much more in-depth than we do and much more time than we do that don't have to cover four other teams. So, we will give our opinion on all of this after months and months of following. Yes, we still follow it. Yes, we still listen to different shows. Yes, we're a fan of other places as well. So, Phil, my main question for you is to get your opinion on this beloved buffalo bills that we're still rooting for here what position or positions are you targeting as buffalo bills gm for the day and are there any
1: players in those positions that you would be on the watch for you know what i'm gonna throw it right back at you oh great okay i have a question for you because it's something that mildly bothers me but it might be more of an nfl this isn't legal It is. It is. Um, (laughs) But it's something that might happen around the NFL. I don't really follow other teams and what their draft boards look like and what their concerns are all that much. So I kind of really just focus in on the bills and what we're doing. But around the league, uh, and I will start with the bills because that's who we're talking about. It seems like At least for the last few years, and especially last year into this year, the draft boards are incredibly similar as far as positions of need for the Bills. And I feel like even going back a few years, it's pretty much the same positions over and over. Do you think that is something that happens everywhere, where the Bills are just solid in other positions, so they just keep focusing in on these couple? Or do you think they really just aren't doing a great job finding those replacements in these certain areas. I mean, defensive tackle, defensive line, offensive line, wide receiver, running back, linebacker, like these have been on the draft boards every single year for what feels like years. And yet here we are again with the exact same list of positional needs. And I feel like, I don't know, it just seems like we're stuck in the same positional needs every single draft. Is that something that you think happens Everywhere, or are the Bills kind of failing a little bit more recently in what they're drafting?
0: Well, for offensive line, I think that happens everywhere. Unless you're just unbelievably young, I think offensive line, you can never have enough bodies, and I don't think there's ever a time where... There isn't a position of need on that five-man rotation up top. You still need backups there too, swing tackles and stuff like that. So I think offensive line you can take out because I think that's for everybody. Now for the defensive line there, they have invested more resources with with the, the draft picks that they have owned than any other position that they've ever done in the history of the Buffalo Bills. It's just... That is where they're coming up short. AJ Vanessa has not reached the draft capital that they spent on him in a second round pick. I think Ray Rousseau he's still very young and still unpolished, where I think if he gets another year with Von Miller, healthy Von Miller next to him, I think he's going to explode. Boogie Basham has not panned out to be anywhere near close to what we thought he was going to be. So I think it's it's more that they're... They're not panning out with those picks. I mean, Ed Oliver is a solid, solid player, but he is not that game-breaker that you would have drafted him in for the ninth place. For wide receiver, they just really haven't addressed that whatsoever. I mean, the earliest pick they've taken is Gabe Davis, and that was a fourth-round pick. Khalil Hodges was a fifth-round pick last year, and he didn't play at it at all. Uh, Isaiah Hodgins, he is now playing for the Giants. So it seems like they're not addressing that position at all besides the trade. And I know Brandon Bean would say, hey, they spent a first round pick on Stefan Diggs. So if you want to count him as a, no, that's not how that works. You can say that's how that works all the time, but they have not addressed the wide receiver position at all in the drafts in the early top three rounds. So I think that's why that's always on the board. So I would say it's a combination where they're, they're either ignoring it like the wide receiver position or they're coming up short with a defensive line.
1: Yeah, I think defensive line, I think, is the big one because that is what you're using all of your high draft capital on. Yeah. So that, I think, is just a glaring what the heck is going on. And again, all these players are hard to project. I'm not saying their job's easy by any means, that you can just take any of these players and, you know, first round's instantly going to hit. There's plenty of first round busts across the league. It happens all the time. There's some bigger ones, some smaller ones, but it happens every single year. So I'm not saying that they're doing a terrible job, but it seems like the... Draft capital they've invested in the first and second round in the last few years has just not really panned out to what they're hoping for. So I think having the defensive tackle or edge tackles always come up in these mock drafts over and over and over after you've invested so much capital in them. I think that's just like frustrating to see that it just continues to be like, oh, let's see the Bills go get another edge rusher for the 100th time because they haven't already done that six years in a row trying to get an edge rusher to make and then yet once again, first round mocks every once in a while have another edge rusher, but moving on Um, for me, I think one of the biggest things, I mean, I don't know. There's two glaring holes. Obviously everyone kind of has it this way with wide receiver and linebacker. I mean, Edmonds is out, so you don't have a true middle linebacker to replace him yet. I think the draft is a good way to do that, especially because you need someone who is under cap control for a little while because the bills cap is up against it right now. So I think that'll be interesting. The big decision to me for this team is wide receiver or linebacker in the first round. Which one do you go with? And to me, I think it all depends on how the draft board falls. I think that's kind of how it is every single year. But if a wide receiver, you know, that is higher ranked that they like quite a bit falls to their position and ends up being an obvious pick, then I'm sure they will go wide receiver. But if a linebacker, same thing, falls to them that was higher rated than anyone else on their board I would say they go that way but to me I think it comes down to wide receiver or linebacker this year for the first round and the name that everybody keeps seeing coming up over and over and over as the wide receiver to fall is Quinton Jones or sorry wow I don't know where they even got them. Jordan Addison from USC seems to be the guy that everyone is kind of having the bills look at as far as pick number 27 so I I will I guess follow suit and go with that, but I don't I don't know. I I guess it's weird to say that a third wide receiver, and especially when you have Khalil Shakir who had a decent rookie season and showed what he can do, that a third wide receiver is more important to the team than an obvious massive hole in the middle of your linebacker core. That will start every single down, every single play on defense for the most part. Obviously, they rotate here and there, but you have a player completely missing from your defense, whereas a third wide receiver, I know they're kind of missing that second wide receiver because Gabe Davis, while good, hasn't panned out to be a true number two yet. So I understand that you'd probably have that wide receiver on the field quite a bit as well, but I don't know to me how you pick wide receiver over linebacker other than the fact that. The AFC has become so offensive heavy and that is the way to win games is it's going to be high scoring in the playoffs and you're going to need all the help you can get on offense to win it. So I, I understand going that way with wide receiver, but at the same time, your linebacker core is just missing a massive part of it right now.
0: Yeah, I'll try to fly through this because I feel the same way as you do. I wouldn't mind a trade for DeAndre Hopkins. It was I one of my hot corners Let's that he was going to be do it. coming to play. Buffalo, so you know I don't think the asking price is very high because if it if any team was meeting it, they would have been trading it. But he's definitely getting moved to the draft, so hopefully it's the Buffalo. But yeah, first two rounds, one of them's got to be a wide receiver, one of them's got to be a a linebacker to replace Edmonds, because I don't think the guy is on the team. In my opinion, defensive tackle, they don't have anybody signed past this year, so I think they're going to be taking one there. Tight end. Unless they really like Quentin Morris, I do. I think he is good enough to play behind Dawson Knox in a position that they don't really, you know, put a bunch of resources in, and they just signed Dawson Knox to a huge contract. So I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. So why would you invest in a guy that sits behind him like a Quentin Mo- Quentin Morris who? what had 11 receptions this year. And then offensive line, you always need somebody in the offensive line, maybe bring in a right tackle to push Spencer Brown and see if he can, you know, rise to the occasion. But yeah, the top two at the main part of the draft here is wide receiver and linebacker. You have to leave the draft with a what first, second, third round wide receiver or linebacker. Otherwise I think you failed.
1: Yep. I I agree. I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we always agree this easily, but, uh, yeah, I think wide receiver and linebacker are your two obvious gaps in the team. And I think in the first two rounds, you should be going after them. I know the bills are all about not drafting for need and drafting for value. So if somebody, you know, is tanking, I mean, last year there was a, uh, a linebacker tanking, which is pretty interesting that, Oh God, we didn't go there. Uh, I'll let it go. Um, but, but I mean, he didn't play at all last year anyway. So, if uh, I, I could see them possibly switching it up, if there again is a position that is, you know, a high rated player that is just falling for who knows what reason, they might go off of what they need. But I agree that if you don't leave the first and second rounds with a wide receiver and a linebacker, I, I don't know exactly what you're looking at. I would hope that they pull that off. Or like you said, if you don't go wide receiver in the first two rounds, you better be bringing D hop in for a trade. So that concludes that. We'll go
0: over all the draft picks and what we think about them on the following Monday show because the thir- the Friday show we'll be recording as the first round's going on. But fi- Phil, final segment here MVP. I think if you listen to the first segment, you know who's coming. Matt Vince, insane forty four saves. He led the team to victory. He led the team to another division, uh, East Division title. It's been a long time coming. I don't know how we've waited this long to give him an MVP for the BSC, but we could probably give it to him after each game pretty much. Uh, He definitely deserves the MVP for, you know, single-handedly the final 30 seconds leading his team to victory. I still love the the stack of the pads save he made. I I think that was the first thing I said once we left the arena was he went hockey style and stacked the pads and didn't let them score. Just
1: Mad Vance BSC MVP for this week. Matt Vince has only led the Buffalo bandits to two for two since he's been on the team in finals. Cause we haven't seen what happens this year yet. And three for three for winning the East division title. I don't know what else you could possibly ask for the guy. And again, in three seasons, three completed seasons, like you said, you hate saying it, but one canceled season in just that short amount of time, he already has more victories than any other bandits goalie for all time the dude is absolutely amazing he's insane and he is just leading them to the promised land for the most part i mean i know they haven't gotten the championship yet and i don't think you can really blame last year on him and other than that he i mean three straight east division titles and two back-to-back finals hopefully a third in a row this season i don't i just don't know what else you could possibly ask he's good at lacrosse
0: so phil uh anything else you want to add to this show before we shut it down for
1: another work week it was fun talking about the Bills for the first time in a really long time with the draft coming up. I'm excited, but the Bandits absolutely uh, stole it. What an incredible game, and at some point, I don't know if it'll be soon or in the off season or something, I will absolutely go back and probably rewatch that entire game because it was a lot of fun. Really glad it was at home, really glad to be a part of it, and my goodness, really gearing up for playoffs. The March to May is on. Yeah, I think the only thing I forgot to mention, Chris, Chris uh, Swenson a heck
0: of a video tribute to him i I apologize immensely for just throwing it at the end here it didn't get the attention that it deserves from us but he definitely got the attention that he deserved from that game unbelievable tribute to him i really thought he was retiring i don't know if you felt the same way that that video seemed like a retirement video (laughs) thank god it's not that and it was just 30 years of service for the buffalo Bandits. but my god unbelievable. I think the player summed it up even better than I can. Banditland is not Banditland without the voice of the Buffalo Bandits and that Chris Swenson. So congrats to him. Unbelievable career so far and looking forward to many, many more years with him on the call. So thank you all for listening to another episode of the Buffalo Sports Collective. Follow along with us on Facebook and Instagram at Buffalo Sports Collective. And on Twitter at Buffalo Sports Go. Visit our website at Buffalo Collective.com and subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts while also leaving us a review on Apple and Spotify. Until next time, bye bye.